0: the Fall Line. As listeners know, we've spent our time between cases interviewing experts whose knowledge might add something interesting and valuable to the larger discussion of cold cases, of true crime, of science, of ethics. For this episode, we reached out to two researchers slash Josh Hallmark and Anna Priestland. Both Josh and Anna are involved in deep, years-long projects that require archival work, primary investigative research, and everything in between. We thought you might want to learn more about their approaches and their advice to writers and researchers who are just now entering the field. Josh Hallmark is a writer and podcaster who's been in the industry for years, He's a one-man production house, putting out the Karen and Ellen letters, Our Americana, Playlist, and True Crime BS, his first foray into true crime. Josh spent four years researching the life and crimes of serial killer Israel Keys, and he's had an experience few true crime podcasters are familiar with, working with enormous FBI Freedom of Information Act request fulfillments, but also trying to fill in the gaps in those records to try and see what has been missed about Israel Keys, and if he himself can provide that information. We first encountered Josh's work in the Karen and Ellen Letters, which is one of the most original podcasting projects out there. Part found letter, epistolary story, part comedy, and part true life mystery. And just a quick note, during our conversation, Josh's mic failed to pick up the recording of his first answer, so we've included the backup recording of it here. After that, you'll notice a sudden improvement in his audio quality. So I first became familiar with your work through the podcast called The Karen and Ellen Letters, which, in its own way, is a mystery. Can you briefly describe the premise of that podcast in terms of its mystery?
1: Yeah, so... When I was, I believe, 24, I was gifted at uh, just a stack of letters from a, a woman I worked with at a law firm, and she said something along the lines of, trust me, you're going to love this. And uh, so later on at the party, a few drinks later, after most of the people had left, there were a handful of us there, and we opened this strange package of letters, and they were all handwritten. It was from the 80s. And... Uh, You know, as we read, we realized it was between a landlord and his two teenage tenants. And it was clear that these two tenants, uh, both women, it was their first apartment and that they had come from quite a bit of privilege. Uh, And they also did not appear to be the sharpest tools in the shed. Uh and so as we read it, we were like, Oh, this is crazy because it's it's mostly just demands after demands or very weird non sequiturs that you would never write to your landlord. Um and the further you get, it's about three years worth of correspondence. It just gets so egregious that you're like, These can't be real letters. Um And so, you know, as we read them, uh I went into work the following Monday and asked the coworker, like, These aren't real, are they? She goes, no, they are real. And she told me the mythology behind how they ended up in her lap. Uh, she had volunteered for the Tenants' Rights Union and gotten a hold of them there. So they kind of became just like a uh, circle of friend activity. We would have a few glasses of wine and read these letters like once a month and just like all over laughing. And then eventually I turned them into a blog and then podcasting became a thing. So they became like a podcast. And they are mystery in that. The podcast is the reading of these letters. We have actors playing each of the parts. And my narration is my journey, which ended up being, I believe, like a 15-year journey to authenticate the letters. Um, and so the mystery is, are these real? How much of them are real? Who are these people? Uh, how did these letters come to be? How did they come to be in my hand? so it's kind of like a comedic true crime, almost. Um, it's, it's kind of genre-defying.
0: So most of our audience is probably most familiar with you from your research into Israel Keys and your podcast, True Crime Bullshit. I'm interested, were you working on these projects at the same time, Karen and Ellen and Israel Keys Research?
1: <laughs> I was. Um, I was actually working on four projects simultaneously. And, you know, going back now and listening to them, I can definitely hear how they're influenced uh, and influenced one another. Uh, But for sure, Karen and Ellen and Israel Keys, I was up to my elbows in research in two very different ways, but um, often in the same geographical areas, which was kind of ironic and humorous.
0: I know that you set out and actually did some really intensive investigation in Karen and Ellen, but did you find that those skills were useful as you also began your keys work
1: oh my gosh absolutely Um, (laughs) prior to podcasting I had done freelance writing and I'd been in marketing but I had never done investigative writing. Um, and, you know, I feel like people play loose and fast with the word journalism, so I'm just going to avoid it altogether. But I'd never really done freelance investigation uh, in my writing. So yeah, I had never really done investigative research to uh, at this extreme before. And so doing it with Karen and Ellen definitely showed me new ways. It kind of expanded uh, my knowledge of research and investigations. And Really taught me to be a little unafraid. Uh, I think in both podcasts, at the very beginning of each of them, you get a sense of my appreh- apprehension to dig into these stories, and kind of I have a lot of ethical questions about what I'm, pre- what I have the privilege of looking into, and who does a story belong to. And there are ethical questions I still have, but I think me digging deep into Karen and Ellen because of an obsession and a need to solve this mystery really gave me a a lot of leeway uh, when it came to investigating keys. So I I think on like a very emotional, personal level, it was super helpful. And then also just on a resource level, I learned a lot about like using microfiches and going through um, newspaper archives and uh, using social media to very strange lengths. So, yeah, it was super helpful. What drew you to the Israel Keys story? So I've always had an interest in true crime. I it, it always was kind of like a hobby. You know, I was raised in the 80s, so like I came up uh just on the heels of what I like to call the like serial killer craze from the 70s and when Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted were on primetime TV, so it was very much a part of my childhood, uh, especially being from the Bay Area. And then I lived in Seattle when Keys was arrested and while his name wasn't released uh, nationally news about his crimes began to trickle out in Seattle because there were investigations in the area and to me as a true crime listener or a true crime watcher it was a really fascinating story because it was kind of true crime in reverse and that we knew who the killer was but we didn't know who his victims were and then uh, on a more macro level There was a serial killer operating for years and years and years who had been arrested and then committed suicide before most of America even knew he existed. And that was a really fascinating dynamic to me. And and then the further I dug into who he was, the story was just really interesting because it's just kind of the perfect nature versus nurture story. And you've got cults and religion and um, running away from white supremacy and marrying, you know, a, a biracial woman. And there's just a lot of A lot of like true crime genre mold breaking in this story, and I found that interesting and I found it just holistically a really rich story.
0: So most people, when they become interested in a case, they Google it. But you went so many steps further than that. You had executed an enormous FOIA request with the FBI, and you eventually received an enormous trove of Key's case material. Had you ever had experience submitting FOIA before, or, and if so, in what context?
1: <laughs> sure didn't. Um, it It's so funny. There's this confidence you have when you've never done something before. It's like very Dunning-Kruger where you're like, oh, must be easy. Everyone else is doing it. Um, and so I, I'm glad I went in with that level of ignorance because I, I think if I'd known how challenging it would be, I might have been a little... Uh, shy about doing it, but I I decided to file a FOIA because I just that's what I heard what you were supposed to do, and to me it was really important that I told my own story, which meant doing independent research. And I actually decided very early on that I was going to do a Keys blackout. I was not going to listen to podcasts about Keys. I was not going to watch any docu series about Keys. I wasn't going to look them up on Wikipedia. Like I was going to wait for the FBI files to come before I looked at anything on the internet or talked to anyone because I I wanted my opinions to be developed by my research and not other people's opinions. Um, So I filed the FOIA and had no idea what it would cost or how long it would take. And what I later learned is, I filed my initial FOIA uh, at the time that an author was suing the FBI because they were refusing to release certain documents. Uh, So it took a lot longer than I expected. And what I found out years later was that's why. Um, But I ended up paying, oh gosh, it's been a while, I think like $1,800, which surprised me because what a lot of people don't realize with the FBI, this is not with all agencies, is they'll send you a note saying... Your FOIA has been approved. You owe us this much. You have this number of days to respond. Uh, And I was like, oh, I don't have $1,800 and I don't know that I can get it in seven days. Um, So I kind of scrambled. The FOIA expired. We started a GoFundMe. uh, And the whole time I'm terrified that someone's going to do a serialized podcast on this case because it's so interesting and no one's done it before. And Luckily, it all worked out. I was able to get the FOIA just a few months later. And then sure enough, I think like 4,000 pages of materials ended up in my inbox. And I was like, oh, this is much bigger than I thought it was going to be. And so I spent years going through these files and listening to, I think, like 35 hours of interviews from him and really getting to know every aspect of this case including like tertiary and I say this with air quotes characters and the people in Israel's life. I really just wanted a comprehensive view of the case before I started thinking about like the storytelling elements of it.
0: You have these materials but you're not just reporting on keys. they're a tool in your reconstruction of his movements. I'd love to talk to you about how you began the process of that.
1: I think what was most important to me when I started this was um, if I'm going to do true crime, I want to do it with a purpose. Um, And the purpose was there are all these families out there with missing loved ones and they don't know what happened to them. So again, it might have been like a misplaced confidence, but I went in thinking like, I want to find some of these missing victims. I figured when I get these files, it's not about looking at them and retelling them. It's about looking for the holes and trying to fill them. And so uh, they had a pretty comprehensive timeline, but it wasn't completely comprehensive because they also had receipts and bank transactions that had not been included in the timeline, and they also had contradicting evidence. So you know the timeline would say Keys flew here on this date, but then I'm going through his phone records, and they're placing him somewhere entirely differently. So Again, like going in, just kind of like absorbing all the information rather than taking it at face value and telling a story about it. I was able to see like, oh, there were some mistakes made uh, in this timeline and we can actually place him somewhere else. And so it changes the way we're looking at who he possibly could have murdered. Um, And then we can get into the NamUs 44, I think, in a second. But that was really eye opening because the FBI saw it as one thing. And then the more I looked into his travels and looked into who he knew and where they were located, I realized the name is 44 was something entirely different.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting to listen to because it's not that you're setting out to disprove the FBI. It's that it's it's this really fascinating moment of in kind of real-time listening, watching someone take information and go forward with it. Do you know what I mean? To go further. So you spend a lot of time... I know, off air, comparing Keyes' movements and his MO to deaths that were not attributed to him. And that included the people that you refer to as The Nameless 44, who you named all of them on your show. Can you talk to me about how you approach that? How did you decide that, okay, Keys looked up these 44 people, how do I rule them in or out as possible victims or adjacent to possible victims?
1: I worked with uh, an FBI agent and I worked with a criminal psychologist and I worked with them with complete reverence. They were experts. They knew significantly more than I did. And uh, so I knew not to call into question anything they said to me unless I had like categorical proof that they were mistaken. And so what happened was I had asked each of them and the uh, psychologist had said, oh, he just he has a uh, paraphilia for missing people. And so he's getting off on missing people around the country. And maybe he's responsible for some of them. But I think a lot of it is just him getting off on looking at all these missing persons cases. And the FBI agent said, you know, we looked at a lot of them and we're not really sure. But the criminal psychologist might be like, might be correct. And what I found was like, It was clear he didn't kill all these people because some of them went missing before he was even alive. Some of them had been solved. Some of them had, like, very clear suspects. Um, And so I was like, well, I don't think he's just randomly Googling missing persons cases to, you know, please some corner of his brain. Like, how did we get here and how did we get to these specific people? So I plotted them all on a map. And realized, for the most part, they all fell within seven what I called hotspots. And I'm a very visual person, so I already had a map of all of his travels and a map of where like people he was close to lived or places he went to very frequently were. And when I put the NamUs44 map on top of that map, I realized all those little hotspots aligned. So... He was looking in specific areas that he traveled to very frequently. And then I went back and listened to his interviews and he had said, you know, I didn't search for my victims by name or I rarely did. I usually searched like for the place that I abducted them from, Um, searched missing people from that place and would click around until I found them. And that's when it clicked for me. That's what he was doing. That's who the name is. 44 are is he's searching missing people, Southwest Pennsylvania and clicking until he finds his victim. So once I realized that and was pretty certain about it, uh, I was able to take another look and realize like, okay, we can cross these people off. And, you know, it was kind of like doing a logic puzzle.
0: I think that a lot came out of that though, because one of the most interesting things to me about your investigation is your reinterpretation of evidence that we'd all assume to be fact, like that, Keys is the rare serial killer who chose his victims totally at random. That was really evident in your exploration of the double murder of the Couriers. Can you talk about what you discovered about Keys's approach and how that changed your outlook?
1: Yeah, so the big mythology about Keys and one of the things that interested me in the case in the first place is that everything was random. Um, that was his whole M.O., that's how he got away with it for so long, is he went to a random place and abducted someone at random. Uh, and I found that to be not entirely accurate, and that started with the couriers, because going back to my map, like he had a cabin in upstate New York, and his parents had a cabin in upstate Maine, and the courier's house was a, on basically the direct route between the two, and he drove that route many, many times over the 14 years that he was out and about doing dirty uh so i was like oh that's strange that's not entirely random and then i went back and saw that he had been at that hotel several times before and then i looked at the timeline uh and it was clear to me that there was nothing random about this so we have lorraine courier saying months before this that she feels like she's being followed um We have a woman years before this who works at the same building as Lorraine Courier, who says she's being followed from work. Uh, And then I looked at the timeline, and it would have been impossible for him to randomly have selected their house just based on the amount of time it it took him to complete this this murder. Um, He said that he wanted to find a house that... Uh, had a single car garage with no car in the driveway, no dog, no kids, and he just prowled around until he randomly found it. But based on the time stamps for them being abducted and him leaving his hotel, and how long it would take for him to get to the courier's house, it's there's no room for him to be randomly roaming this neighborhood. He walked directly to their house, um, and then I went back and looked at looked at these statements saying that. Lorraine had said she was being followed, and then off-the-cuff statements from him where he's saying, like, I'm not going to uh, – Bill Courier had begged him, you know, don't do this, and Key said, I've been planning this for years. There's no way I'm not going to. And that's something that can be so discounted in just an interview if you're not looking at the whole story. And the whole story is he had been planning that for years. He had a kill kit buried in the closest park to their house. He had stayed at this motel, which is the closest motel to their house. Many times he had been to the place they both work, he knew that they didn't have kids, he knew that they didn't have a dog he He had been there before um and so that was a big clue and I wouldn't say I'd like landed on that as being proof until I found out, which is not well known, that he admitted to stalking his alleged final victim, Samantha Koenig for months before he abducted her. And he actually was going to abduct her and her boyfriend, uh, but her boyfriend didn't show up in time. And so he just went with her. And then I went back and found all these eyewitness statements of people saying, like, he was in the parking lot. She disappeared from, like, almost on a nightly basis for the month before she disappeared. And so that's when I realized, like, no, that there's nothing random about this. He's going to places he can easily return. And he's abducting people, at least towards the end of his murder spree that he has stalked.
0: I know that you really dug deep into our own federal statistics and also governmental sources outside of the U.S. How did you use that data and what did you discover about it? And are there large gaps in that data that prevent us from fully researching Keys and thus his possible victims?
1: I mean, you just answered your own question. <laughs> I would say that was my biggest takeaway, is there are massive gaps um, that prevent us from uh, locating not only Keyes' victims, but a lot of victims. Uh, there's jurisdictional issues, which he exploited. Uh, there's international issues, which he exploited. So I, I Keyes had made a few comments like, Canadians don't count, and we could put them in Canada many times without him ever crossing a border like he rented a boat in canada but there's no border crossing that shows him going into the country or there was a time where he crossed a border going back into the united states but there was no uh record of him crossing into canada so he knew how to work the border system and i think it's because he he always almost his entire life except for the last few years in anchorage lived within about 20 miles of a border Um, and he learned how to use reservations to cross borders without being noticed. Um, So that was alarming to me, especially in a a pre-9-11 world. So I looked into that and realized, like, even now, um, there are some places where I am in the Northeast where there's hundreds of miles where one um, border patrol tower is responsible for hundreds of miles of border. And So that was terrifying. And then I I went into Canada thinking, you know, they'll probably have a much better record system than we do, uh, and they don't for missing people. And then I would look at NamUs and then look at Charlie Project, and there would be people on one and not on the other. There just isn't a comprehensive database in either, actually in any of the countries I looked at, because Keys traveled internationally quite a bit, uh, for missing persons, let alone a, a worldwide one, which I know would be way too much to ask. But there, there's no comprehensive data for missing persons in general. And then when you look at minorities, particularly indigenous people who he very likely murdered just because he lives on a reservation, he worked at a reservation. He, We know everything he took from from his experience in the world, he later used in getting away with crime. So it's not a far leap to suggest that his time in this reservation... Uh, he used as research to commit crimes. So um, there's very little data on missing indigenous people in America or Canada. Um, There's a lot of jurisdictional issues in who's responsible for a missing person who disappears from a reservation. So it just was really disheartening. Um, And there were a lot of nights I got really frustrated. There were some nights where I was like crying because I was so angry that... um, this is something we should prioritize. And I think it goes to ego and certain jurisdictions not wanting to work with one another and people needing power. And it's just a really sad result and symptom of um, of agencies' inability to work with one another.
0: What has this process taught you about deep research and primary research that you didn't know before you began?
1: Um. I mean, everything, (laughs) but I I think for, you know, (laughs) use in this conversation, uh, I went into this saying, like, no speculation. Uh, I am only working with facts. And because of limitations that we just discussed and other limitations, uh, facts will only get you so far. And so you have to trust your gut, but you also have to trust your gut in a way where you... Are humble about your own limitations, so I, I think that um, if I had not speculated I think that I would not have found these hot spots I definitely would not have taken the name is 44 and figured out what I had with them um, and I would not have looked for holes in the timeline so i I do think speculate with responsibility um, and also with respect, because I, I never wanted to make this a spectacle. Everyone involved was important to me. Um, I wanted to go in as ethically as possible. And I think the ethics of true crime are very gray. And, you know, I'm still finding out every day that I've made mistakes ethically. So I I, I think just in terms of research and storytelling, it's do your own research, do independent research, do not let other people's opinions cloud yours, trust the experts, but also if you see something, say something. Um, so like trust your gut if something doesn't look right. Uh, cause what I learned even from the FBI themselves is, uh, resources are limited and they can't do everything. And I think we have this expectation that they've got millions of dollars and all the time in the world, and that's just not the case. So it's, it's just as easy, if not more easy, for them to miss something because they've got a huge caseload.
0: So in your current season, which is season three, you're focusing on a much different case, uh, serial killer Kelly Cochran. Why did you pick her for the season and how has that experience been different from your
1: research into Keys? When season two was ending... I was at a a bit of a crossroads of like, is there more story to tell with keys? Um, And then I had a few other cases that I was looking into that I had filed FOIAs on. And I realized like there is a lot more to tell with keys, but I think it needs more time. Um, I need to do some more research. There was some stuff happening behind the scenes that I needed to wait to play out. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna take a look at these FOIAs as they're coming in and see what story is the most compelling. And then I, I kind of did the exact opposite of what I did with Keys. It's like I was watching ID Discovery and they had a four-part special on Kelly Cochran. And it piqued my interest because in a lot of ways, um, she was similar to Keys. Like I had not heard of her. She was a serial killer who most people didn't know about. And she claimed to have around the same victim count. And she claimed to have like crossed state lines quite a bit. And she had a really interesting background and so I was like okay this is really compelling um, as a mystery and then like on a psychological level she is killing people with her husband who she eventually killed and um they had this murder pact and so that's really interesting and she's claiming her husband's abusing her but then he's telling people that she's abusing him so it was like psychologically and I guess um narratively really fascinating to me and the file process was much different than with keys. It took me eight months to get the files. (laughs) Um, Like I only just uh, a couple days ago got the biggest uh, collection of files. So I've kind of been doing it the opposite of keys where I had like three years and plenty of time to like research everything there was. And with this, I was kind of doing it in piecemeal as I was producing the show, um, which... I, my boyfriend's always like, oh my God, that must be awful. And I'm like, it is, but it's, it's good because it's challenging me to kind of be on my toes and really capture a story uh, that is ever evolving. So it, it did kind of bring me back to the Karen and Ellen days of like everything I just said, like I don't know where we go from here and I guess I'll figure it out and then have to figure out how to tell that story next week. Um, so yeah, it was a really interesting journey. And then Kelly is... You know, Keys was—I um, had a lot of attachment to it because I got to know the people in his life, and I really cared about them. And he was really dynamic in that he was a father and a good father uh, by all accounts, and a family man and a great member of his community. And and I talked to people who just had like devastating stories who were like impacted by this so dramatically, and um, I really had an affinity for everyone involved. And with Kelly, like that story wasn't really there and i didn't have years and years to get to know everyone involved so um there was less of an attachment which i think made it easier for me to just get into the facts and just get into the case and see her as you know uh kind of a singular monster which is my biggest mistake so far this season um and i'm working to correct it but i think also like this case is crazy. <laughs> like, Keys was crazy in a very like boogeyman kind of way that we're familiar with it. This is crazy in almost like a Tiger King way. And it's been challenging for me to like not experience the humor of some of the things that happen because the tone of the first two seasons was so serious. And this I'm like telling you the crazy things that she's done and having a very challenging time um, not being able to poke fun at it, which is not really my brand. Um, But it's so wild that you just kind of have to in order to tell the story.
0: Do you have any advice for someone who would want to conduct their own deep dive? And I'd love for you to talk about the work that we as researchers do beyond, you know, newspaper articles or books or, you know, TV specials.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, if you have the the privilege of time, um do all your research up front. Don't listen to anything else. Like do your own research, look at that, develop your own opinions and then if you are looking for supplementary information, then maybe like listen to another podcast or watch like an ID docu series or whatever, but um I think that first and foremost because true crime is a very saturated genre and what makes a show unique is your unique perspective and your unique experience as the narrator or the storyteller. So I, I think the best thing you can do um, to stay true to yourself, which is super important because if you don't, you're going to burn out so fast, um, but also to give a unique experience is to marry who you are and your experience to the facts and only the facts. Um and not someone else's version of the facts because uh, you would be surprised how just like changing a sentence um, can change an entire story. So I, I think that first and foremost and I think just like make it as enriching an experience for yourself as possible. Um, look at it holistically like no story is just um, victim crime murderer like there's so much more than that. Uh, I. It's so trite, but it's trite for a reason. Like, the story is never the rock that you throw into the pond. It's all the ripples that come from the rock going into the pond. And I I think that that is really great storytelling.
0: Thanks to Josh Hallmark for discussing his research with us. You can find links to his various projects in the show notes. Anna Priestland got her start writing for Case File, where she authored many of the show's series, including their long-form on The Golden State Killer. It was one of the earliest long-form treatments of the serial killer, and Anna was actually on location in California for some time, where she met and interviewed many of the family members and officials before the story of Joseph D'Angelo's arrest broke in the media. Anna has gone on to a career as an independent author, researcher, and producer, and she's written a number of series, including the History Channel's Letters of Love in World War II and A&E's Murder Town. Anna spent the first part of her adult life working in the fashion industry, where trend research was a major component of her job. She's always had an interest in true crime and in history, though, especially in researching her own family some of whom were brought to Australia as convicts. Over the past few years, she's developed her career as a writer, researcher, and producer. We wanted to know how she expanded her work in episodic formats, one subject a week, into the field of long-form podcasting.
2: For the first couple of years, I was only writing episodic stuff. So I would get, like, two, two and a half weeks to work on an episode, which is not deep research. It's fine to gather all the facts and the information and you might've applied for an FOI some months before or something like that. But it's kind of more about your telling of a story that's already out there, as opposed to really, really deep sort of stuff and finding your own um, things and parts of stories that maybe other people don't know. The way that I kind of work now is that I might have 10 different projects on the go, eight or 10 things, and like I'm just thinking what I've got at the moment, like three or four of them are at least two years in going and I'm still kind of like picking away at them, Um, whereas there's some other stuff that maybe I can – well, right now I can't fly anywhere but I do travel quite a lot so that I can be sort of in the story so I can go and meet people who, who are involved or even just go and explore the place where something happened. And so one of the like best things I think about um, carving out my own thing is that I can work my own projects and I can take as long as I need and that's the thing. Like I don't really ever want to rush anything so I can – Um, spend as long as what it takes to get the story right. Something else I really enjoy doing, especially if it's quite a famous case, like who wants to hear another version of the same story, is really finding a new angle to an existing well-known story. So I always find there's often like An offshoot, like look at it from a different perspective. Maybe see it from one of the smaller cases in a serial case, you know. Um, Find something that no one else has touched on. I think that's something that I really enjoy in the sort of spread out long series work that um, I'm doing at the moment. Can you tell me about some of the most
0: interesting archival projects that you've tackled?
2: The most interesting one that I've done recently is probably a project that we decided at the end of the day after a lot of work that we weren't actually going to produce. And it's interesting that that is one of the most deepest and kind of interesting stories that I've looked into because it actually took that much research and three or four months of gathering stuff and primary research too to realise that it wasn't the right story for us to tell. Um, And I think that's something that when people maybe go and produce something and they haven't spent a long time on researching, they might be producing something, you know, a story that maybe shouldn't be told or isn't the right thing to sort of bring out. So there's one project that I recently spent about three or four months on, um, and that's, it was pretty, pretty full time. I was doing some other stuff at the time, but, like, it was my main focus, and that's sort of how I work. I often have a lot of things that I'm doing, but there's one particular job that's the main focus. And I'd been bought in by a production company to, to do this, and it was quite a famous person. It's a, it's a very famous crime. And it was really exciting and, you know, the project was really interesting. I'd, you know, started doing everything I can from public record and internet and whatever and then slowly digging back into things like the police records and applying for those and prison records. Um, this person had been in prison. And I went out to LA a couple of times and did some travel for this story, went to, you know, down to the uh, county archives Um, And you know, sat in line and got everything that I needed there. And I built a timeline, and that's another thing that a lot of the projects sort of takes a long time to build out that timeline. All of that was really to determine whether this was a project worth doing, and not really even worth doing. Like, is this an amazing story? You know, is this going to be great for the listener? It was actually more of a moral thing. It was. Yes, this is an interesting story and people will probably find it fascinating, but is it actually the right thing to do? We actually got to the point where we decided that although all this work had been done and I probably know more about this crime <laughs> than than most people, um, we decided actually to shelve it. And it was a really positive experience to make that decision because – you know, producing work that is good for everyone, I think is really important and not just a salacious story.
0: And it was that deep archival research that allowed you to make that informed decision, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I found that the information that was out there. So like if you went out and just Googled googled this case and you you know looked into it even if you looked into it for a couple of weeks and you read every single article and maybe read every book which often the books all say different things and whatever you wouldn't probably grasp the severity of the backstory and I think that was what I got so by reading prison records and listening to interviews done with people involved um, who are, you know, people involved in the actual crime and speaking to people like that, I real- that's what made me realise it, made me realise it wasn't something that I wanted to bring out into the world. And I think if I, if I hadn't have done that and I had have just done sort of surface-level research, I probably would have continued with it and I would have been halfway through the project before I realised it was not a good idea.
0: I know that you've done a lot of primary research and some of it has been really active. Can you talk about one or two of the things that you've done when you were generating that kind of active primary research?
2: One of the one of the stories I haven't produced yet, like it's still being worked on. I wanted a story like this. And sometimes this is what I do. I get an idea of a type of story I want to work on and I sort of go looking for, you know, a case or something that's similar. And I got reached out to a woman who has been looking for her husband who is presumed murdered. Um, She's been looking for him for 40 years. And we spent a lot of time on the phone. I looked into everything that I could, got all the records, did a lot of applications for information. And it got to a point where there was only so much that I could – get from the story by being on the other side of the world. So I actually flew out to meet her and spend some time with her. And we talked all day and did a lot of recording. And it was really amazing because a lot of the stuff that we spoke about, I don't think she ever would have spoken to me about on the phone. And, you know, she took me for a tour of the town and it was just really lovely. And we've kind of built up a bond there. And it's also like a trust. So, I know she trusts me with her story and I think that's probably one of the most important things in it, that she knows that I'll tell it in a way that is sort of the truth. Um, And I don't know if I would have been able to get that from just being over here. So, yeah, that's a really – that's one of the things that I really love doing.
0: You actually work outside of true crime as well. And you've done what I think is like one of the most fascinating projects that exists in podcasting, which is Letters of Love in World War II. It is the only podcast I know of that's entirely based on real historical letters. Can you talk about that project, how you came to it, what it entailed, and how you put all of those letters together to form a narrative?
2: Yeah, well, I guess because I've told you about my like family history, passion, and everything, You can see why I'm interested in history in general. So Letters of Love was an idea that I got like way back, like a good few years ago. I really wanted to work on something that wasn't so dark, you know, that was a very similar process, like research process, very similar, um, you know, taking – a huge, docu- you know, a man of documents and creating a story from it. So it was kind of the perfect thing for me. I went out um, looking for a story about letters that had gone on and I found this family who in England who had, found, after the, both their parents had died, had found over a thousand letters between their parents in the attic. And what grabbed me about that is a lot of the time when letters are found, they're often just one-sided. So it's like a man has kept these love letters that he received over years and years and years, but he's not necessarily going to have that response. So the other person's letters. So even when I look at famous letters and stuff, they're often one-sided. So Apart from the fact that the story was beautiful and it's beautiful that these children who are, you know, grandparents themselves now have gone on to learn more about their parents, you know, through these letters themselves, it was also that I kind of knew that from the fact that there were so many letters, it was through such a big time in history and that they were a back and forth that I could Re- at least have a go at making something really amazing with it. So, yeah, I went out to England and visited them and got their approval. And that's the other thing like, got their trust that I would, you know, keep them involved and um, do my best to like bring it to an audience, you know, that really suited their story, which is why doing that with the History Channel in the UK was such a win for us. Outside of the letters, Was there additional research that you needed to do to
0: put this all together?
2: Yeah. So it's funny because a lot of research went into this that you wouldn't hear or like you wouldn't see because there's no narration or no story being written around the letters. But it was much more about my understanding of that time. So I read as much as I could and contacted like the Imperial War Museum and went through lots of archives and stuff learning about events that were in the letters so that I could pick out the parts that really did work together, but also understand this couple a lot more. So I learned so much about different aspects of the war, of course, but also even just small things like why they could grow some vegetables and not other vegetables and, you know, the the, there was a lot that I didn't include in the podcast about their political beliefs because it was just sort of a story thread that didn't really make sense for the love story that I was doing. But I still needed to understand their political beliefs in order to understand them. So yeah, a lot of, that was a lot of research sort of behind the scenes. Sort of like character research. Yeah, exactly.
0: So I know that that was a huge scale project. Are there other projects at that scale that you've taken on um and if you can tell us anything about them that would be amazing
2: yeah I have um the one I was speaking about earlier um that I haven't produced yet with the woman um whose husband is missing there's so much unknown about that that the research does kind of stop somewhere but I'm working on something at the moment that um I can't really talk about, hopefully I can you know, in the near future, but it's a historical crime that spans like five states and it was a long time ago. It was well before digitised records and all of that sort of stuff and it's an interesting project for me now because normally I would be planning when I'm going to go over and which state I'm going to when and what interviews I'm going to do with which law enforcement but I'm actually doing it all remotely because there's no travel at the moment. And so I'm kind of planning this one a lot differently to what I would normally do. So I'm trying to work out, you know, where I might need some assistance or people on the ground doing stuff. Um, And also, you know, working out when places are going to start opening up. So like archives and libraries and things like that. Um, and th- this is a pretty cool one because it's it, it spans about four decades as well. Um, actually, I think it's five decades. And so they're the sort of things that I really love sinking my teeth into, you know, the complex and lots of timelines and stuff that I can draw up. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I can talk a bit more about that in the near future. As a professional
0: writer and researcher, what is something that you wish that people knew more about what we do?
2: I think probably it's not even about research. It's probably about there are people making work like this that really do care about the story and the people and the truth and all of that sort of stuff. I think um, there's so many people doing this sort of thing now that it's easy to think that uh, people just produce this sort of stuff as another story or something like cool, like to everyone to discuss on the weekend. But actually, you know, people, there are people that really do honestly care about the people involved and and getting the story right and making sure it's factual. So just imagining that there's nothing limiting you,
0: what is your absolute dream project?
2: I'd have to say someone coming to me from like, Old Hollywood, or something, saying, I was involved in this crazy crime that no one knows about. And I think I might have a really good story here. And here are like 60 journals, and I've got all of this stuff, all these tapes recorded. I would just, that is, would be my dream. Just someone coming to me with like a story that no one's heard of.
0: This is shifting tone a little bit, but in your mind, what are the basic ethical issues or considerations that come along with any true crime project or research, Uh,
2: especially ones that might not be as present in other genres? There's a lot. I mean, that's kind of something, isn't it, that there's such a huge list of ethical things. Um, For me, it's is this really the right story to tell? And um, Or even am I telling this in the right way? I think my biggest thing is, is that if somebody does not want to be found or somebody does not want their story told, then it's not the right story to tell. I think another thing is you might have, you know, like a 5,000 page file. And there might be things in there that really are crazy and add to the story and all of that sort of stuff. But sometimes you just have to ask yourself, is that something that I really should be putting in here? Like, what is the benefit? Who is that going to benefit by putting that in here? If it's, you know, something tragic or if it's something graphic or to do with children. And I think that's also comes back to that thing I was talking about before, where I spent months working on a case for someone, like a project I was coming onto, and I decided I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And that comes back to this. After reading everything, it was even just the whole case on the whole, I didn't think was morally the right thing to do.
0: And I think that when you're a new researcher, the excitement of getting information is so heady, especially when you get that first FOIA file that's 800 pages long, or you get the exclusive interview. Having too much information um, can be as hard as having very little information in terms of the kind of choices you have to make.
2: Yeah, definitely. So
0: for my last question, I want to ask you a little bit about the writing side of things, because you're not just a researcher, you're also a writer. And one thing that I think we almost never discuss is, how do you take a pile of research, facts, dates, snippets of things, and put them together into a story that has an actual narrative arc? Because we can't retell the truth, we can't change it, but we have to be able to shape the events into a, a narrative that's orderly enough for a listener to connect with. How do you go about doing that in your process?
2: I think I do it differently in every single project that I do. I mean, there's a, obviously a way to tell a story. You know, you need to decide in, if it's a series, the arc of the whole series and then the arc of every episode and how you're going to open every episode and, you know, what's going to end. Is it going to be a cliffhanger, that sort of thing. But also um, it changes because like say with the letters – we wanted to open with, like, why is this story being told? So you hear from the family saying how they found the letters. So then the listener thinks, well, wow, there must be something amazing in these letters. Whereas if I'm, say, I'm working on a series at the moment that's um, a different case per episode but the series is kind of, you know, um, linked, I kind of have to then think about, well, which case is best to come first? You know, like it's um, setting out an outline of the series in general, like which case is most interesting to come first, second, whatever, but then going into that and really mapping out how to tell a cool story. I think it's actually a skill too. It's not really something everyone can do, don't you think?
0: Oh yeah, it's it's a skill and you have to learn it.
2: Oh, definitely. And and study how up other things are done, whether that's films or books or something. Um, everyone sort of has a different way. And I think if you're comfortable in the way that you tell a story, you can sort of flip it around a little bit and play around with it. But you kind of got to find that yourself.
0: It is. It is because you – It's people think because – something's nonfiction, that there's just one way to tell it. And I think that's the biggest mistake to make. Approaching nonfiction should be approached like any other story and that you have to think about position. You have to think about perspective. You have to think about where you start. Are you going to start um, medias res? Are you going to start way, way, way back? Who should be the focal character in any story involving many people? And it really is just learning about Craft, learning about fiction, learning about creative nonfiction and deciding quickly sort of where the camera should be pointed. And that's a skill that just develops over time, I think.
2: And also for audio, because you have to remember that there's no visual cues for your audience, you know, on different characters and stuff. So I think it's also like stripping some stuff back that you might kind of have in a documentary about a case. You probably need to strip it back a little bit and focus on, you know, certain aspects and bring the listener right in.
0: When someone's listening instead of watching, they're processing it so much differently and they don't want to flip back like you would in a book or stop and rewind the TV for 30 seconds to catch up with the story. So
2: you have to think about that too. Yeah. And the right amount of context. So, things need context and you need to describe places and all of that sort of stuff, but it doesn't necessarily need to be just a f- list of facts, does it? Like about a place. It's more about drawing the person in and not kind of boring them.
0: Anna, thank you so much for being willing to talk to me at what I think is 9am in the morning in Australia. And for our listeners, I'm going to link Anna Priestland's website, and I'm also going to tag her Twitter if you want to keep up with what she's working on. And I'll also include a link to a few projects that she's worked on as well, so you can check them out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. We hope that you enjoyed this research-focused episode. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks, as always, to Angie Dodd. The fall line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove, and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. For more information on Josh Hallmark and Anna Priestland's work, please check the links in our show notes.